This is the Stop the Bleed podcast, where host Pat and Kelly will foster powerful discussion around the importance of Stop the Bleed. From awareness and training to education and life-changing actions, you'll hear from survivors, first responders, neighbors, doctors, and people you pass on the street every day. Happy Wednesday. It's Pat and Kelly with the Stop the Bleed podcast. We are excited to be back with a new guest today. Zania Campos is a Stop the Bleed instructor working in emergency management and enterprise resilience at NYU Langone Health. She's doing incredible work spreading our message and teaching folks how to stop the bleed. Zania, we're excited to have you. Thanks for joining us. Tell everyone where you're calling in from today. Hey, Kelly. Hey, everyone. Thanks for, uh, thanks for inviting me. Super pumped to be here and uh, calling you today from uh, unseasonably warm Brooklyn, New York. So uh, we're, we're enjoying this last bit of warm weather. Well, Zania, let's start with a quick overview. Um, if you can tell our guests um, a little bit more about the work that you do at Langone. Yeah, so um, currently I am a manager um, here at NYULH uh, Brooklyn. Um, I am a manager of emergency management and enterprise resilience. Um, I work on a team of about 10 to 12 people. We each have uh, different campuses throughout New York City. And essentially what we do is we, you know, we respond and we plan for and and we manage uh, any sort of disaster, you know, man-made, technological, natural, um, that could impact operations to um, to, to, to our hospitals and, and impact patient care. So, you know, it's, it's a 24-7 job. Um, some jobs are easier than the others, but um, you know, currently Brooklyn and, and the rest of New York City is, is an incredibly, you know, threat-rich environment, and there are no shortages of, of, of uh, potential impacts that, that could, uh, you know, uh, interrupt operations and, and patient care on a day-to-day. So, um, you know, I'm incredibly lucky to just be on a team with some talented people, um, and we continue to just drive and push our enterprise towards resilience. Um, because that's, you know, that's, that's, that's our number one job is uh, patient care. Um, and, and we just want to make sure that we keep uh, New York City running. That's really terrific, uh, Zinnia. You know, you mentioned resilience a couple of times. And uh, one of the key words of the several words that are associated with the Stop the Bleed campaign, of course, is resilience. I'm curious, did you become involved in the campaign as a result of this position that you now have? Or, or what was your path to get so involved in Stop the Bleed as you are? Yeah, so that's that's a great question, Pat. So um, it was kind of serendipitous. Um, each of us here manage different types of programs, um, one of them being uh, MCI and, or, you know, Mass Casualty Incident um, Active Shooter uh, Program. And here at Brooklyn, uh, we are a level one trauma center. Um, and we work uh, really hands-on and directly with all the departments within the emergency department. And, you know, trauma is one of them. And uh, we had a great trauma team here that was involved in the Stop the Bleed program and came to us asking if there were ways that we could, uh, you know, make this program grow, go out into the community, work with our community liaison partners, work with our FQHCs, right, our fairly qualified healthcare centers, um, and really bring this program to teach lay people basic life-saving measures that they can use. Um, to possibly save a life one day. So that's kind of how we got um, put into this. Well, you know, the, the, the landscape of all the things that you guys cover 
is pretty amazing. I'm, I'm wondering, Stop the Bleed was one of the fastest growing public health campaigns nationally uh, prior to March of 2020. And since you're in Brooklyn and Eddie, you're there too, I'm actually in New Jersey. You know, the, the New York metropolitan area was uh, got the first uh, big dose of uh, COVID uh, in early March, late February. How has the uh, pandemic affected uh, your sort of daytime or regular responsibilities? Um, well, I think at the time, everything revolved around COVID and, and we had to push all the great work that we did with these programs and initiatives to the side because they're very hands-on. Um, and, you know, we were instructing to crowds and schools and community centers, and we'd have anywhere up to 50, 60, maybe 70 people. Um, so with COVID, we just weren't able to do that. So um, now that we're coming out of that COVID, you know, clamshell, um, we're able to slowly reintegrate these programs that people are just more comfortable being in crowds now. And, and I think uh, the importance of, of revitalizing these programs is that, you know, it gets people's minds off of. COVID, and it, it reminds them that there are day-to-day -day things that happen um, that have nothing to do with COVID, and you know what? You can have some control over these situations, and, and I think that that's why, you know, this is so important um, for us to kind of get back into the field and, and reinvigorate this work post-COVID. That's great. It sounds like uh, the public is uh, receptive uh, to uh, the this kind of stuff, I'll say. Is that is that a pretty fair take on it? I do. I, I think, you know, we're seeing people go outside again. We're seeing people just do the things that they used to do. And it's just a gentle reminder that, you know, there was life <laughs> before COVID. And, and I think that, you know, that now that we're seeing people um, kind of come outside a little bit more, you know, those inherent dangers that just Come with being outside and doing things yourself or you know back in the forefront of people's minds um and programs and programs like this are really important and you know pat you mentioned eddie i just wanted to take a step back zania will you take a minute and just introduce your colleague eddie so we all can meet him yeah so um our newly joined colleague eddie risby hails us actually um from new jersey um, he is a Rutgers gentleman, uh, also does EMT work in firefighting for the university as well. Um, we are so lucky that he, you know, wanted to take that experience with us and give us a fresh eye and, and join our team. Um, so I don't know, Eddie, do you want to say a few words? Yeah, Z, thank you for having me, everyone. Uh, happy to be here. Um, very excited about, uh, the Stop the Bleed program here at NYU. Uh, my background, as he said, is in fire and EMS. And one of the big pushes even in fire and EMS uh, in the past five to 10 years has been tourniquets and stop the bleed. And uh, surprisingly in the medical field, um, you know, tourniquets have been, you know, told not to be used in the past and now they're back in the forefront. And now for the first time, what I've seen in the past you know, five years is, you know, walking into a grocery store and they're teaching stop the bleed to civilians. So I think my background brings this, you know, you know, in, intuitive nature with using a tourniquet or stop the bleed kit. And I really enjoy bringing it to the civilian world. And I, and I was a bit of a spe uh, skeptic at first saying, oh, I, I think we're going to scare the, the general population by showing them tourniquets or stop the bleed kits or Israeli bandages, 
And um, the thank you I've, I've gotten after these courses um, has been great. And people have been asking us where they can buy more kits and how um, offices and um, doctor's offices have asked us how we can um, have these kits at their entrances or next to their AEDs. So I, I've gotten really excited about this program. That, that's really fantastic. It's funny you mentioned sort of the um, skepticism around tourniquets. Tania, you might be interested to know. So I was in the Army in the 1980s, quite a while ago. And the history of the military and tourniquets until 2005 or 2006 was that uh, you weren't supposed to use a tourniquet for fear that somebody would lose a limb. And there's a whole backstory, really sort of the origin story of the whole Stop the Bleed campaign that starts off with uh, military learnings, uh, battlefield learnings. But uh, you know, today, uh, soldiers in, in combat theater are all trained on how to use tourniquets, hemostatic bandages. And that was uh, not the case uh, probably through, uh, well, probably 2005 or six. So that's been a real sea change uh, in that environment as well. And uh, we've seen that in other environments like you're referencing Eddie in the, in the EMS space. And I, I was just gonna go back to a quick question. Um, you know, we're talking a lot about COVID and courses and people, you know, starting to feel more comfortable. Uh, can you speak um, either Eddie or Zania to your experience with course training? And if you guys took a break in Brooklyn during the pandemic, if you went virtual or kind of what you were seeing from a course perspective? So I think during COVID, uh, we, we paused a lot of our programs, right? Just, just because uh, we had so many um, restrictions on what we could do and, and um, you know, caps on the, lim on the limit of folks we could have in a room at a time. So we, we paused it. Um, but as we were coming out, we realized that there was a need to perhaps get this on a platform virtually. Um, so, you know, working with Eddie and, and working with our um, Office of Development Learning here, uh, we were able to take the training materials um, and, you know, kind of construct it and we were able to put it on our focus learning platform here. Um, and, you know, we've just been advertising it heavily uh, through department heads, um, you know, VPs and above saying, hey, this is awesome training that we usually do in person. We can't do it now, but we do have it available on focus, you know. Anyone on, on your team is more than welcome to, to, to log on and, and take this training. So um, while I do find that there's just more value added in the hands-on because, you know, they get to touch and feel and, and do cool things, um, there are some, you know, words like ABC and life-threatening and different types of bleeding, certain buzzwords that I feel um, can capture an audience if they're watching something online. So, um, so we have been able to launch a, a virtual platform uh, NYU. And the courses that you're teaching, that's for uh, staff members throughout campus, am I correct? Yeah, it's for anyone who wants to take the class. So we've got, you know, laypersons, we've got clinicians, you know, anyone who wants to take the class is more than welcome to take it. And, and Eddie kind of touched on this a little bit before, you know, there are a lot of clinicians that don't know how to use a tourniquet, you know, and, and it's really important that it's especially working in a level one trauma center, right? If, if we've got those tools available, you know, that might be the difference between saving a life, you know, before a surgeon can come down and, and, and you know, you do their job. So, um, so we're, we're working on, you know, getting tourniquets um, strategically placed throughout not only the ED, but also the entire hospital. 
Janine, I know we're going to get into uh, how we got connected and uh, asked if you were available for this podcast in a minute, but what you're referencing in terms of the uh, Focus Learning Platform, it, it, are there is there some place that members of the public can go to access uh, that information? Um, so unfortunately, that's internal to NYU. Um, so anyone in the NYU LH system, so we're talking over 30, 40,000 employees have access to this focus training. Wow. Oh, that's great. That's great. That's incredible. Well, yeah, let's let's shift gears to how we did get connected. Um, so Zania reached out to our team a few weeks ago uh, to share an incident that happened on a construction site. And ironically, she wasn't on the site. Uh, she was next door and heard the screaming and able to help. So uh, Zania, you and I have touched base about this. I know a lot about the story. Um, Pat has heard via me, but can you walk us through what you heard that day and kind of the scenario that followed? Yeah, I think, you know, those of us who are working from home um, have just become desensitized to anything that happens outside of our windows. And um, it was one of those days where, you know, I back-to-back meetings, tons of deliverables due that day. I actually, you know, had a break in between my next meeting. Um, and I heard, you know, this, this blood curdling scream. And as, as the native New Yorker that I am, you know, we don't stick our nose in business that doesn't belong to us. So I was definitely apprehensive, but you know, when, when I caught the gentleman running out of the window with something on his arm, I knew that something was wrong. Um, and right after he ran out, someone else ran out and, and this guy, you know, his, I thought, I thought he was going to break down and cry, this poor guy. Um, so I, I was actually on the phone, you know, I was like, Hey, let me call you guys back, ran downstairs. Um, it turns out that the gentleman accidentally cut one of his colleagues in the arm with a circular saw. Um, and he felt terrible and there was just, you know, blood everywhere. Um, my neighbors came down and everyone was just really in a state of shock. Like you don't realize that people just go static, you know? Um, so definitely never thought I'd have to use this training in real life, but because I've done these classes so many times, um, it was instinct, right? Like just manage the situation. I, I didn't maybe scream, but I forcefully demanded someone dial 911. Um, which was amazing because you could see the light go off, right? Like people were like, oh, I, I need to do something. Um, so had folks dial 911, um, you know, identified that he was bleeding pretty profusely, knew that I had a tourniquet, ran back upstairs, grabbed my tourniquet, sat the gentleman down, and I explained what, what I was doing, right? I explained what the tourniquet was. I explained um, how I'm going to put it on. I explained what it's going to do. I explained that it might be uncomfortable. Um, but ultimately, you know, if it's uncomfortable, it's good. That means it's doing its job. And this is what's going to happen after we apply the tourniquet. Um, so I, I think a lot of this is just managing emotions um, as, as you're doing these actions to, to stop that bleed. Um, and luckily, and, and Pat, maybe you can speak to this too, but, you know, Jersey, the 911 system is just super strapped. Um, we weren't able to get anyone on the hook for about a good 20 to 25 minutes. Um, and finally, you know, we did have a chief come and the first thing he asked was, hey, who applied the tourniquet? And I was like, I did chief. So we, you know, we were able to sit and chat for a while. And uh, finally, the truck came and took the gentleman away. And, um, you know, I, I think that the situation could have been um, a lot more dire uh, 
had I not been there and I don't like to fluff myself up, but I, I think that uh, being trained and understanding what to do and, and knowing that I had the ability to manage the environment and control the environment, um, I, I think that's what made it successful. And, and I think that that's what a lot of this training does, that it teaches people how to manage a crisis, right? Um, and it empowers people to make decisions and, and to manage this thing of chaos around them. And, you know, it's, I, I like to call it the, the organization of a chaos of symphony, right? Like, it's, it's just what we do. Um, and then I went back upstairs and, you know, hopped on my call and carried out the rest of my day. And, and that's it, you know? So um, I, don't, I, I don't think I did anything spectacular. I, I think I did uh, what any trained citizen would do. And, and that's, you know, take, take care of, of someone who's in need. And yeah, I, I wish there was like more drama to it, but there's not, <laughs> you know. Cindy, I'm gonna politely disagree with you. I, I think what you did is amazing. And I think that part of what we're about is empowering more and more citizens to do amazing things when the time comes. Uh, and, and listening to uh, what you just described, having heard the broad strokes of the story before, there's a couple of things I'm struck by. The first is that the base case for the campaign is that people can bleed out very quickly. And it sometimes takes a very long time for first responders to get to the scene of the incident. And so that, that time gap is the crucial piece that if somebody else doesn't step in to do something like you did, something even worse is going to happen. That person uh, may, may very well expire. The other thing is that a lot of people associate the campaign with traumatic bleeding that is the result of uh, mass casualty incidents or shootings. And certainly those happen. Uh, and, and typically they're very uh, publicized. They have a lot of media coverage. But the fact is that the vast majority of bleeding incidents don't come from those things. They come from other things. Workplace accidents, which is what happened in your case, we sort of uh, track stories of how these things happen nationally. A couple of days ago, there was a story of a couple of high school kids that went to uh, the local quarry to uh, jump into the water at the bottom of the mine. And uh, one of the kids, uh, the third kid that jumped off the cliff, didn't jump far enough into the water. And so he kind of landed on the rocks and uh, had a compound fracture and uh, punctured his uh, femoral artery. And uh, the other kids have been actually trained and uh, knew to apply pressure and whatnot, and they're credited with saving that, uh, that boy's life. And so one of the things that we like to weave into the Stop the Bleed messaging is that it's, it's not just about helping somebody who's just been shot. And, and your situation, what, everything that you described about the story that you just told is, is sort of textbook how this is all supposed to work. So I, I, I'm going to say it's amazing, and please accept uh, my characterization, even though you may, you may disagree with it. But uh, I think there's a lot of thankful people, not just the person who you saved, but the people that uh, care about that person. I agree. It, it, it's one of those, like you say, textbooks, uh, Pat. I think it's one of those scenarios that the everyday person can say, oh, that can happen to me, and I should get trained because of that. I think that's right. Uh, I think um, part of the reason why we have this podcast is to share stories, certainly share information, 
but really to engage the, the broad public to learn more about the campaign and why it would make sense for them to want to become trained and, and be ready and perhaps get equipment uh, in their workplace, at home, you know, so on and so forth, because there are uh, so many lives lost in this country each year due to blood loss that really could be saved if somebody knew what to do. Yeah, I think it reminds me of, you know, stories that you hear. Um, and, you know, I don't live on the East Coast, so I don't know much about, you know, East Coasters or I don't know, I kind of apartment living or how close this construction zone was in my head. I'm thinking, okay, how many flights of stairs did you have to run down? Were there other people there? Did other people see it? You know, we watch TV and we see these stories that are told of see something, do something. But then when people are all, all interviewed, oh, I heard screaming. Oh, what'd you do? Nothing. So I guess I'm just kind of wondering as you're talking about this story, can you tell me a little bit more like, hey, I had to run down X stairs or it was right out my window? Yeah. So um, so the my my window where I have my little office space is directly like directly faces the street. So I have you know, I can look out the street. I see my neighbors, see cars. And, you know, I'm, I'm in a three story condo um, and there's another condo going up you know, right next to, to my, to my house. And they, they've been working on this thing for, you know, over a year and there have been guys, you know, coming in and out all year and um, he, 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 listening to them work and, and the noise is just something typical. It starts off every day, like around seven thirty o'clock in the morning. And um, yeah, it was, there was nothing atypical about the day, right? It was sunny. I wanted to get done with work because I wanted to go outside and have a beer, you know, it was just, it was just one of those days. And um and, and when I heard the scream, um, you don't think it's real at first, right? Like you don't, you think you're hearing things. And then when I saw the gentleman just like run outside with the blanket on his arm, and then I saw his colleague run behind him just in disbelief, um, there was, it was almost instinctual, right? Like it was just, I'm running down two and a half flights of stairs, right? And it's like, okay, do I have my keys? Do I have shoes on? Like, you know, it's just, you just act. And, um, and, you know, when, when you kind of assess the situation, I was able to just run back up those two flights of stairs again. And then it was like, oh, where's my tourniquet, right? And I was like, is it here? Is it there? Okay, I remember where my tourniquet is. Because again, I never thought that I had to use it. So it was literally sitting in my kitchen drawer, right? I had forgotten it was there. Um, so grabbed it, ran back downstairs, and then um, applied it and, 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 and did what we had to do. Um, yeah, it was, it's definitely something I will never forget. Um, but, but one of the things I, I wanted to talk about, especially for folks who are listening, who are debating on whether or not they want to take the course or even the instructors, um, I think either Pat or Kelly mentioned, you know, why is, it, why is the training so important? And I would really, you know, for the instructors, go out into your neighborhood, go out into your workspaces. And really identify as to why this training might be helpful for the general public. We work in a very industrial area. There are factories and warehouses, and you know it's it's just so threat rich that anything can happen at any moment. And we really use the environment around us um, to explain why this training is so important before we conduct this class. Right? Like I think it's like the third or fourth slide where it says why is it so important. And it gives little pictures of, you know, like the baseball game or the house or the cooking, right? It's like these accidents happen and it, it doesn't have to be an active shooter or MCI case. Accidents happen all the time. So 
Um, so we really do our best to incorporate the environment and integrate it into the training as to, you know, why um, it's so important and what scenario you what scenario you might run into that makes it so important. Well, I have to say, not to be repetitive on this, uh, the story is amazing and it's 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 really worthy of a case study. Uh, it's 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 so uh, sort of crisp and clean in relationship to the key touch points that we uh, think about. So I, I, I really want to thank you first for reaching out to us in the first place uh, and for sharing the story with us. Um, we're going to wrap up soon, but before we do that, we uh, have a couple of hot seat questions. If you're uh, ready to take those on, Zania. Let's do it. So uh, the first one is, uh, name a, a famous person uh, that you'd like to see Stop the Bleed trained. I would have to say Donald Trump because he would be the greatest stop the bleed person <laughs> ever. The absolute greatest, the best. There certainly would be at least one person with that opinion, but I, it, I like it because it would, it would draw a lot of attention to the campaign. I think that's fair to say. Exactly. He, he would just throw tourniquets out in the middle of the campaign. Sunia, in one word, what does stop the bleed mean to you? Uh, empowerment. So I know that your story involves not an oddball, but a, a different kind of way that somebody winds up bleeding traumatically than what I was saying before, uh, mass shootings and whatnot. Can you, can you cite uh, an oddball way, a different oddball way that somebody might result in bleeding traumatically? Um, I would probably say um, any sort of DIY project that involves, you know, equipment i'm you know i'm convinced now that you you will have life-threatening bleeding so just be mindful of the diy projects you decide to take on just be careful i'm laughing because i do a lot of diy <laughs> but i'm also be careful trained. <laughs> <laughs> um well i have one last question and um I'm actually, Zania, going to ask you, and then Eddie, since you're here with us, I'm going to have you answer it as well. Um, if you could right now nominate one person in your life to get Stop the Bleed trained, who would you nominate and why? I would definitely nominate my mom, um, only because she is the most reserved person in the world. And I would, I would love to see her in action. If she had to apply a tourniquet, I would just love to watch her. And where's your mom live? <laughs> uh, she's in Chicago. She's retired uh, in Chicago, you know, doing retired life. But she's just so calm. And I'm sure that she would, after she applied the tourniquet, she would probably offer the person like cookies and tea. <laughs> so, yeah. And what's her name? So we can get a shout out. Uh, Felice. Yeah, Felice Rosado. Love you, Ma. <laughs> All right, Eddie, and you have to nominate someone today too. Who would it be and why? Yeah, I think I would nominate my 12-year-old uh, nephew, uh, Zaman. He's uh, sh showing some interest in the medical field, and I think that um, Stop the Bleed training would be a great way for him to get a foot in the door. And also, I'm an instructor, so I think maybe I should just run a class with him. Uh, I would like to also add that I was on the meeting um, right after Z had placed this tourniquet. We were on a WebEx meeting, kind of like what we're on today. And, um, you know, she was a little bit early to the meeting and she was absolutely glowing. And um, I, I look at Z and I'm like, what's up? Because we work together every day. We, we know when something's up. I said, what's up? And she goes, Eddie, tourniquets work. 
And I was like, what happened? And she tells me this whole story. And it's a really fresh story. It just happened, you know, 10 minutes ago. And um, you could just see the excitement in someone who just placed their tourniquet for the first time. That happened to me the first time I I've only placed a tourniquet a few times, but you know, you, you do this training all this time, you train other people when you actually get to use it hands-on, there's just like a, a rush of endorphins that hit your body. And I think we got uh, Zania a little excited about the medical field too. And I'm trying to convince her to join EMS. I think she would be a great addition. And uh, maybe in the future, she's gonna be an EMT as well. Well, you know, I think that we just came up with our episode title, Tourniquets, Tourniquets Work. work. Yeah, that's great. That's the first thing that she said after she placed it. And the first thing she said to me is, Eddie, tourniquets work. I just wish you were recording that WebEx. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> maybe, maybe it's in the archive someplace. Somewhere out on the cloud. Well, Zania, Eddie, thank you guys so much for joining us. As Pat said, you know, this podcast is all about sharing stories and ways that we can all learn and be inspired. And it was definitely inspiring having this conversation with you guys. Yeah, thanks to you both. It's, this has been great. And Pat, before we, before we hang up, um, who do we have on our spotlight today? Yeah, so the spotlight today is about the Stop the Bleed Coalition. The coalition is a nonprofit organization that was formed to support the growth of the campaign. And they're due to uh, officially launch a new website and a series of programs in January. But uh, we've got permission to uh, let people know about the site, which is uh, mostly constructed and uh, most of the program information is available. So if people want to visit stopthebleedcoalition.org, they can uh, take a look at it. Uh, apparently more to come in another uh, month or so. But I've, I've been on the site and it's uh, pretty cool. It's got a lot of good resources and uh, information and uh, some new programs that uh, I think are really going to help the campaign. All right. Well, I'm sure we'll have more of that to come as the site continues to be updated. But again, everyone, that was stopthebleedcoalition.org. Um, again, I just wanted to thank our guest today. And as a reminder, everyone, please subscribe. You can subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. If you're excited to hear more or have an idea to share with us, just like Zania did, please leave a comment, reach out to us, um, or review a podcast. Last but not least, please take a minute to share the podcast with someone you know, because together we can save more lives. To learn more about the Stop the Bleed campaign, Stop the Bleed grants and scholarships, and how you or your organization can get involved, visit StopTheBleedProject.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at StopTheBleed for campaign updates. 